I'm really glad to see everyone today. If you're just joining us, we're right now in week four of a series where we're trying to tell the whole story of Christianity in, four, in 14 weeks. So let me catch you up a bit on where we've gone so far. God created the world, and it was very good. And he made humans to be a representation of God's rule on earth and to enjoy the world that he created. But humans sinned and introduced the forces of evil into the world, which were actively unmaking the good earth that God intended. The world was cursed, but God began to fix that by making a deal with Abraham that through his family the whole world would be blessed and remade into what it should be. That family became Israel, and God brought them out of slavery, and he came to literally live with them in a tent in their camp. God had made the world. The world needed the presence of God to keep it from falling apart, and so God came to live with the Israelites. They were incredibly blessed by his presence, and were given food and land and were protected from their enemies. But they were constantly disobeying in unthinkable ways. Nevertheless, God would be with them and save the world through them anyway. Since that time, the Israelites have entered into the land that God had promised them. But even then, the book of Judges describes how they continued to be super disobedient to the law that God gave them, which led God to bring a ton of different peoples to come into the land and oppress them. Every time that happened, just like God had planned, the Israelites came back to him and worshipped him rightly. But once things started going, going right again, they started worshiping other gods and treating each other in just appalling ways. And so then the cycle continued. Kind of sounds like us, doesn't it? So the real problem was that they were disobeying God, and that meant that he was punishing them. But eventually the Israelites said, you know what the real problem is? We don't have a king. And God's prophet at the time, Samuel, said, look, you don't want a king. Only the worst kinds of people aspire to political office. And they'll take your sons for the egotistical wars and levy super harsh taxes on you. But the Israelites said, no, give us one. All the other countries have one. And so God said, Samuel, if they want to reject me by taking a king, let them have it good and hard. So here, kingship is a super bad thing. But there's some tension because at the same time, God prophesied in a few places like Genesis 49, Numbers 24, and 1 Samuel 2 that a really good king would come out of Israel, and that God would save the world through him. Anyway, Samuel anointed a super tall, good-looking king named Saul. Now Saul was exactly the kind of king that Samuel had warned them all about. He was really egotistical and insecure about his power. He levied super harsh taxes, and he made sure he forced the Israelites to join the army. Not only that, but he made Israel even worse as far as obeying God's law. So God rejected Saul as king. But instead, Samuel anointed some shepherd boy named David, the smallest kid in his whole family, to be king. After a few years, Israel didn't have some foreign invader coming in for like the first time ever, which brings us to this passage. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God rem remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. So David asking to build God a temple was a completely reasonable request. In Deuteronomy 12, God gives Israel instructions about eventually building him a temple in the promised land, and it says that they should do it when, quote, God gives them rest from their enemies, which is exactly what the narrator says at the beginning of this passage. 
David's request was so reasonable that Nathan, who is basically David's prophet on retainer, actually interrupts David's speech. David hasn't even gotten to the point where he even asked to build the temple. He's only pointed out how weird it is that God is living in a tent. But Nathan is so impressed that he doesn't even fully hear David out. He doesn't even ask if God, if David should build the temple. He's just that sure that God would be happy. As we know from the book, this isn't because Nathan was some kind of yes man who always goes along with what the king says. He actually rebukes him a few times pretty harshly. But even then, he basically says, say no more, do it. David even goes out of his way to clear the whole idea with God by asking a prophet. In 1 Kings 5, when Solomon builds the temple, he didn't ask anybody like David did. So as a reader, you finally feel comfortable with a king who is starting to seek God after a whole long saga of Saul going literally insane. Meanwhile, David is going above and beyond to make sure that God is okay with the temple. We've seen all the bad stuff about what a king does with Saul. Are we about to see finally a good king? Let's keep reading. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up from out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. So everything appears to go completely wrong. God gives a vision to Nathan at night about David. Now, if we had gone through the whole book of Samuel, you would see that every time there's a prophecy that comes at night, God is rejecting a ruler. At the very beginning of the book, Samuel gets up in the middle of the night to hear a prophecy that God was rejecting Eli as the high priest. Later on, Samuel gets a prophecy at night that says that God was rejecting Saul as king. This happens again even after Samuel had died, where Saul goes to a witch and summons Samuel from the dead at night, and Samuel says that Saul will die soon. In the book of Samuel, hearing a nighttime prophecy is bad news, and as a reader, you're starting to get afraid that God is about to reject David now too, just like Eli and Saul before him. Just before this story, David had danced naked in front of the Ark of the Covenant, and his wife Michael, who's also the daughter of Saul, tells him off for it. David responds basically by bragging to her, saying something like, I'm God's chosen king, and your daddy wasn't, so I'll do whatever I want. Plus, I'll give all the slave girls a nice full view of my body. God still hasn't commented on this yet, and so you can even imagine that God is about to judge David for it. Finally, look at the way that God is speaking here. You could totally hear it being said in a confrontational way. Would you build a house for me? Did I ever ask you for this temple? Look at all this stuff I've done for you and for your people, and you ask me such a question? In the ancient world, God's rejecting kings from building them temples was just not a thing that people did when times were good. This whole thing was set up to make you think for a solid eight verses, oh no, something really bad is about to happen. It looks like God was about to reject David as king, just like he did all the rulers before him. It's not until the end of verse 9 that it finally becomes clear that not only is God not rejecting David, 
He's actually making an incredibly generous covenant with him. David thought that he needed to build a house for God, but instead God is building a household for David. God is so much more generous than David could have imagined. But why did David think that he needed to build something for God, and why did God reject it? In the ancient world, the relationship between the kings and the gods was basically, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. The king was the patron of the gods. He built temples for him, and he made sure everyone sacrificed to the gods to feed him. He kept the people in line so that they didn't annoy the gods, and if he did all that well, then the gods would make sure that he has a long kingdom, that the people remember him, and the invaders don't come. This way, the kings had a little bit of control over the gods, and the gods had a little bit of control over the king. What God set up was very different. He would bless the king long before the king had any chance to bless God. That way, God never owes anything to the king, but the king owes everything to God. There's nothing that you could do to control God. There's nothing that he needs that you can hold over him. God does what he wants. And this chapter, with all its twists and turns, is a perfect example of how God can really be anything but predictable, because he doesn't need us. This is true all throughout the book of Samuel. At the beginning of the book, the Philistines capture the ark where God is most present. The Philistines put the ark in their temple with all the other gods they captured. But one night, all the other gods fell down, bowing before the ark with their heads and hands cut off. The Philistines get so scared that they just give the ark back to the Israelites. God doesn't need the Israelites to come rescue him. He can rescue himself. And on the one hand, it's really awesome that God is like this, right? Surely our God, who needs nothing, is better than a God who needs stuff. Not only that, but we know that God really loves us in a way that is far more pure than any way that we could love him. He doesn't love us because he needs us. He loves us because he loves us, even though we are completely dependent on him and even sin against him constantly. Do you ever have friends that you wonder, do you really love me or do you love what I give you or how you feel when you're around me? You never have to worry about that with God. He sent his son to die for us, not because he wanted to woo us or because he missed us, but because he loves us, really us, to the point that he takes pain into himself for us. But in another way, it's also really scary. We would love to be able to have some control over God, that we can kind of bribe him or nudge him to do what we want him to do. That's what it means when the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Yeah, there's a bit of respect involved, but there's a genuine fear too. We can't control God, and if you really understand that, you can't help but be afraid of him. But the beginning of knowledge is recognizing that because God is totally unpredictable from our end, We have a long way to go before we understand what it means to be good. If God is good and we have a hard time understanding him, then we got to learn a whole lot to know about what goodness is. So now watch as David is super good to David. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and are no longer disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. 
When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your very own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. When you read God's promises to David here, you might notice that they're actually really similar to the promises given to Abraham in our first week in Genesis 12. Both David and Abraham are promised that they will have land where they will be planted, that they will have many descendants, and that they will always have this covenant with God, and that their family will be blessed forever. To some extent, God has already fulfilled all his promises to Abraham. Israel is already in the land that God promised them. Abraham certainly has had all kinds of descendants, and they have been blessed by God. But God isn't done blessing the world through Israel. So God is kind of updating his covenant with Abraham by making it specifically with the teens of Israel, starting with David. But just like with Abraham, God's covenant with David was unconditional. From the moment the covenant is made, God would never go back on his deal, no matter how bad the kings got. And they got pretty bad. God says, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Whenever he goes astray, then I will rebuke him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of humanity. In other words, if David's offspring goes astray like Saul did, he's not going to reject them, but he's going to punish them. As an aside, that's actually super hopeful news for us. When it seems like God is punishing us, that's actually a pretty good sign that he's not abandoning us. Proverbs says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, and do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, as a father the son he delights in. The worst thing that could happen is God saying, Go ahead and go your own way. I won't be with you. There's good reason to be hopeful when things go wrong. So since God's unconditional covenant with Abraham is very similar to his unconditional covenant with David, the role David's offspring plays is very similar to the role that Israel plays. Just like how Israel was the representative of God to earth and also the representative of earth to God, now God was represented to Israel through the king and Israel was represented to God through the king. But Israel's kings were really, really bad. And that meant that, as a representative of Israel, things went really bad. Wherever the kings went, Israel went. If they were idolatrous, then Israel ended up being idolatrous. And if that happened, then God would punish them to try to bring them back. You get little glimpses through kings like David, Josiah, and Hezekiah of the kings leading Israel to be faithful to God. But for the most part, the kings just made things worse as a representative of Israel. But nevertheless, God made sure, through some miraculous means, that David's offspring would be on the throne for centuries. But about 500 years later, it really looks like God did abandon his covenant with David and also with Abraham. Even though God said, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever, there really wasn't a king from the line of David sitting on the throne of Israel after about 586 B.C., All the Israelite kings after David, except for maybe two, were just so aggressively, absolutely terrible. And so Israel was sent into exile, just like what God said last week. This really must have felt hopeless for Israel, who was constantly ruled by nothing but foreign kings from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome. 
Could Israel have been so bad that God decided to forget his covenants with Abraham and David? To be sure, everything that God said would happen about kings being terrible and taking their money and sending them off to war came true. But what about all the good things that he prophesied about a king? Shouldn't a king who would come who would truly represent God's rule on earth and unite all the peoples to him? In this chapter, God says, I will be to the king like a father, and he will be to me like a son, in a seemingly figurative way. He'll punish him when he does wrong, but never really leave him. But when none of the Israelite kings were any good, meaning he did nothing but punish him, God raised up his own literal son in Jesus to fulfill his promise to David, and his kingdom was established forever. Jesus being the son of God means that he is the fulfillment of the promise to David. And as we'll see next week, Jesus is everything that Israel ever hoped for in a king. He rules justly and takes no bribes. He suffers on behalf of the people. He represents the reign of God on earth perfectly, and he subdues all the nations of the earth in the worship of God. He brings peace to the earth and comfort to the ones who suffer. Think about all the forces of evil in this world. And this week in Texas, we saw that there are so many. Mass shootings and bloodthirsty tyrants and depression and drug addiction and demonic evils all over the place. But then this promise to David that God will rule over the earth means that he will judge these forces of evil like the puny, pathetic toddlers they really are. God's rightful and just authority will never again be defied, and his image in humans will no longer be destroyed. All the evil that opposes what is good has no power. Because the one who really is in charge is God through Christ. There will be no more hunger or thirst or weeping or death. And not only that, but he will purify the, our own hearts of the evil which has infected us. In the meantime, we get to work for God's kingdom in his Christ to be more and more evident in the world. And one day we'll be able to say the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his king, and he shall reign forever and ever. Let's pray. God, you reign over the world through Jesus. We're so excited for you to come again and restore justice and righteousness in the world. Help us to live like we're already part of that kingdom today. Amen.